0: And a quick programming note before we start the show. Just in time for your Thanksgiving travel, we'll have our final episode of season one of Lost at the Smithsonian out early. Make sure to look for it on Monday, November 25th.
1: Well, I wanted to show you something over here that you might be interested in. Okay. Let me just move away this 18th century harpsichord. 18th century harpsichord. Hey, it's Asif
0: Manvi, and I am back at the Smithsonian in musical instrument storage trying not to break anything from the 18th century.
1: Yeah, but I'm gonna put some gloves on.
0: With curator John Troutman in the American History Museum.
1: The majority of the music collection is uh, rooted in musical instruments. And so we have, you know, a lot of drawers here and cabinets that are built specifically for certain types of instruments. And then we have other sorts of shelving that's designed specifically for costumes. But there's something That's- in particular that I wanted to pull out. Um, so, suits worn by the Bee Gees. Oh my God. Matching. That's huge for me. Matching suits from their 1978 tour right after are you Saturday Night Fever with their shoes. What? Dude, I am <laughs> the
0: biggest Bee Gees fan on this planet. As a lifelong member of the Bee Gees fan club, I guess I should begrudgingly accept that some of you listening might not know who they are. Here's the Nickel version. The Bee Gees were three brothers: Barry, Robin, and Maurice Gibb. They were one of the most successful groups in the history of rock and roll. Maybe this song sounds familiar to you. Staying alive, staying alive. New York City breaking. That's staying alive. It's arguably the most recognizable disco song from the '70s, which had a lot of disco songs vying for the honor. The Bee Gees sound defined the disco era. They sold 220 million records worldwide, and at one point were the most popular band in the world, with nine number one hit songs on the Billboard charts.
1: Three matching suits worn on tour and at yeah. the peak of their powers yeah. silver, shimmering, shiny,
0: tight fitting,
1: tiny uh, suits. I mean, they're kind of little jackets. Yeah, they're little know. jackets. It's, the zipper adjusts so they can determine the amount of chest that's exposed. <laughs> sure. Uh, it's
0: all necklaces. about the hair and the teeth. Yeah. The Bee Gees didn't just spring forth fully formed in the 1970s with their blow-dried hair and shining teeth. The Bee Gees we know is the third version. In the 1950s, their family moved to Australia where they had a boy band.
2: Kiss me one soul, oh yeah.
0: In the 60s, they moved back to Britain and had international fame as a rock band. Hey, baby, you don't
2: know what it's like. baby, you don't know what it's like To love
0: somebody To love somebody The way I love you But the Bee Gees that personified disco, those Bee Gees didn't happen until the 70s. And then in 1977... These Bee Gees showed up with their soundtrack for Saturday Night Fever, starring John Travolta. It's one of the best-selling soundtracks of all time. The silver suits I'm looking at were what they wore on the tour that followed. For someone like me, these are practically
1: holy artifacts. You know, they had recognized by 1983, which is when they donated the costumes, that there was something special about that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and they saw this as a really generous way, I think, to thank the American people by donating these costumes. that kind of transformed everybody's sense of the look and feel of the moment when that movie came out. So those are the pants. And the names of oh the God, brothers reach. Barry um, is
0: in there. That's Barry. This is it got his waist. 28 waist. <laughs> An inseam 35. He had a 28-inch waist in 1978.
1: <laughs> these yeah. are the shoes. I don't know how would you describe these? White shoes, yeah. uh, sort of uh, with a heel if you take a look at this shoe from Robin, I mean, it's in pretty good shape. Yeah. If you pull this one out...
0: Oh, see, that's interesting. That's a little bit more beat up. Whose shoe is that? This is also Robin's. And, and they're both uh, right shoes. Yes. Okay, so they clearly have a different set.
1: That's right. So when the brothers decided to donate the shoes and the costumes to the Smithsonian, Robin also loved the shoes so much that he had two pairs, and um, in fact... <laughs> He grabbed the wrong set.
0: So. Oh my god! So it's like the ruby slippers. Exactly, they are mismatched. It's
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> right. You guys make a habit of this. <laughs> what is it with you guys in shoes? You can't have the right shoes.
1: <laughs> in our defense, this is what arrived. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. That's hilarious. But he, it's just—he sent you two
0: right shoes from two yes. different pairs. Yes. Wow. Oh, Saturday Night Fever was a low-budget film about Italian-American kids in late 70s Brooklyn who were disco-crazed. John Travolta played Tony Manero, who was like a disco superhero. By day, he lived with his parents and worked a dead-end job in a small paint store. And at night, he was king of the dance floor at the local disco.
1: What's your favorite uh, moment from Saturday Night Fever? It's obvious, but the first shot Mm -hmm. just remains so kind of ingrained in the, the iconic walk down the street yeah. in Brooklyn of uh, the shoes and panning up that's right checking out the suit in the window right. kind of moving on yeah I mean, set to staying alive yeah. is just kind of one of the great scenes of 1970s cinema sure uh, you yeah.
0: The opening scene of Saturday Night Fever, Tony wearing a tight black leather jacket, red silk shirt, open collar and a gold necklace is strutting down the sidewalk to the beat of "Staying Alive. It's pure disco and he hasn't even gotten to the club yet. There's a, there's a moment in that very scene that I remember. So I'm this little kid, I finally get to see Saturday Night Fever about five or six years after it had originally come out. And there's a scene where he goes up to the pizza place Two, two, give me two, Let's go. And he gets two slices of pizza, and he says, give me, give me two, one on top of the other. <laughs> that's my Travolta,
2: that's,
0: that's my Travolta. <laughs> As a little kid, I was watching, I was like, you can do that? <laughs> and that really solidified America for me. I was like, two slices of pizza, and they would put one on top of the other, and you could eat it together, and he walks down the street with that. Yeah, I <laughs> mean... Like you, I discovered them through Saturday Night Fever, as many people did, and then went back and found the earlier stuff, you know, Fanny Be Tender and How Do You Mend a Broken Heart, which is, you know, I mean, just so many of them.
2: I can think of younger days When living for my life Was everything a man could want to do
0: By the mid-70s, the Bee Gees were considered a dated 60s band, but that was before Saturday Night Fever. Their soundtrack to that film made them the centerpiece of the disco movement. The disco ball, if you will. And 20 years later, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Barry Gibb was knighted in 2018, the last surviving member of the band. But that knighting brings up a good question. The Bee Gees were three Brits who were raised in Australia. So, why have anything from the Bee Gees in the Smithsonian? Like, what, are the, what is their legacy in terms of American entertainment?
1: Yeah, you know, the Bee Gees represent this global phenomenon in many ways coming out of England, relocating to Australia, and then completely taking over the charts in the United States right. and other parts of the world. I mean, redefining the sound of what was on the radio in the late 70s. That in itself is enough for us to think about ways in which we should try to better understand that and represent that in the collections at the museum. You can bring something from outside,
0: it gets redefined in America, it gets popularized in a way and then broadcast back out to the rest of the world.
1: And it's it's why the is interested in exploring those moments when those combined influences are so palpable and visceral for so many people in the country.
0: For me, what it what it represented was, uh, I was a little kid in England, you know, I was uh, living in sort of the north of England. And there was something aspirational and hopeful and sentimental about the Bee Gees mm. with also a thumping, sort of beating sexuality. And I remember because all of my white English friends were listening to Led Zeppelin and heavy metal. Mm. And they were sort of banging their heads with this kind of rage that young 13-year-old boys have. On the other side, you had R&B. And because of whatever uh, racism that Indian families had, <laughs> I didn't have any black friends. So the Bee Gees almost represented this kind of conflation of R&B and rock and roll and in this dance music. And and tell me about the power of dance because I remember it was one of the great things about the Bee Gees was that you could dance to their music. And I think that's what was so powerful about seeing John Travolta in that film.
1: Really, if you go back and look at American music over the prior several decades. I mean, what's driving people's musical experiences uh, is the danceability of the music itself. That's one of the kind of major elements of significance for the Bee Gees is that they kind of took these traditions, especially dance traditions that were beginning to really blossom in New York, in the Bronx, and Queens, in the mid-1970s, in these discotheques. They begin to bring this through into a mainstream movie that becomes this kind of unheralded kind of an unexpected critical success.
0: The disco look of the late 70s was bell bottoms, six inch heels, jumpsuits, and gold lame. The three-piece polyester suit that John Travolta wore in Saturday Night Fever immediately became one of the most famous suits in the world. It was iconic, and the image of Travolta wearing that suit, popping his hip out and pointing his finger in the air, gave the disco movement something to coalesce around. So, Saturday Night Fever happens in 1977? 1977. And was that the explosion of disco, or was that really the birth of disco?
1: Well... Was it the explosion or was it the beginning of the end? I mean, that's kind of, you know, right. one of the questions. Um, because disco had really begun to spread rapidly throughout the U.S. by 1976, okay. 75, 76. It was really exciting. It was, it was a moment in which music was becoming kind of social again. Uh-huh. So that instead of attending a Zeppelin concert and watching People would go to clubs and, and listen dance. to DJs, right. you know, and DJs would put on the records and they would, the best DJs out there could find the right beat, find the right moment and keep people on the floor. Right. And that was the goal, you know, is to keep people having a great time. And so that tradition really begins to take off before Saturday Night Fever. Right, But it's still below kind of the, the mainstream consciousness at the time. It's, it's something, Because before that, people, you know, I remember...
0: You know, uh, when I I, I was in school in England and it was only me and my Iranian friend and my other Indian friend, we would go at night to the clubs and we're sometimes too young to get in, but we just like figure out how to get into these dance clubs and we go to these discos. It, 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 feel, it felt like it was still on the margins. It, was, it wasn't like the mainstream. What That's I mean right. by that is like white kids were not yep. going running to the discos. Yep. And this was 1976 or so, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. with our bell bottoms and our, yeah. you know, our high uh, shoes with six-inch heels. We were probably too young to be in those clubs uh-huh. because most of the other kids, I think, were 17, 16, okay. 17. We were like 13, wow. you know. But yeah. we we sort of snuck our way in. Yeah and we talk our way into these, these dance clubs. And then Saturday Night Fever came out, and it was like, I was too young to see the movie, but everything that it was about just felt like it was about, you know, even the movie is about a, a, a man who is aspirationally trying to find something greater in his life than the mundane life that he lives. And maybe that was the, the, the power of disco at that time.
1: And so, you know, when the when the BGs kind of tapped into that vein. They presented it, especially through Saturday Night Fever and and all the radio stations, the pop stations that were just playing them relentlessly after that. They began to open up disco to all these other audiences that were coming to clubs, not for the reasons that those original folks were coming to clubs, you know, it was a little bit different. I mean, you you would see disco clubs opening in the Holiday Inn in Joliet, where you'd see the dance floors lighting up and everything. It was, people were transporting what they saw on the screen translating it into their own kind of specific context all over the country and all over the world so what the
0: Bee Gees are most known for I guess in in many ways is the falsetto Mm -hmm. sound right which correct me if I'm wrong was actually quite prominent in R and B and mm-hmm. black music, much more than it was in white music, right? I mean, there were there were bands already doing that falsetto sort of high Sound yeah. in uh, R and B music from like the 1950s.
1: Well, that's right, and and you know there were a lot of artists that were especially in the mid 50s with duop that were really incorporating falsetto into their strongest material, yeah. and and so the Bee Gees, who had dabbled in falsetto with Barry's voice a little bit in their earlier career, really just fully embrace it. And Barry also, I mean, is, he's generating this new kind of sound of masculinity as well. Right. Well, know? I was going to ask about that
0: because because a lot of people criticized it for being feminine yeah. and feminine sounding, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that for some they, who were critics of the sound, Maybe it didn't sit right for them mm-hmm. in terms of what they expected male singers to sound like. Right. But they had tons of fans who felt that they're about as masculine as you could get. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, they were just uh, superstars. Right. No man And eventually, by the early 1980s, you begin to see the the makings of a backlash against the genre itself.
0: Disco sucks! Disco sucks! That backlash was led by rock music fans, who felt that rock music was on its way out thanks to disco's domination of the 1978 Grammys. It was seen as a dreaded musical disease that had to be eradicated. This is now officially
1: the world's largest anti-disco rally!
0: Rock fans who hated disco rushed to join the disco sucks movement created by Chicago shock jock Steve Dahl. Dahl had lost his job as a DJ when they switched from rock to disco and responded by vowing to destroy disco altogether. This culminated with Disco Demolition Night in 1979, a double-header baseball game at Comiskey Park in Chicago, where tickets were only 98 cents if you brought a disco record to destroy.
2: Well, listen, we took all-
1: Warm up real good.
0: Those who attended were largely young white men for a rally against a musical genre that championed women, the gay community, and people of color. If you're saying Donna Summer, the village people, and Barry White need to be destroyed, then is this really just about the music?
2: Wow. Three, two.
0: The racist and homophobic angle of Disco Demolition Night was hard to ignore, as was Steve Dahl, who reveled in the attention it got him.
1: The Bee Gees actually blamed me for killing Disco, which I thought was a victory for me. I took that as a win.
0: And so for a while, people like me, who love Disco, well, we felt like we had to tone it down a bit. And then when that backlash came, you know, I know for myself it was... People like you and me sort of went underground a little bit. We were like, we can't admit that we like the Bee Gees anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was right. not cool in that's the 1980s. Right. Just a little bit after the Smithsonian acquired these that's outfits, right. mm-hmm. suddenly 85, 84, 85, oh, gone. 86, gone. you could not admit yeah. anymore that you were a Bee Gees fan. You couldn't. Yep. I didn't come out of the closet in that regard until like the mid 90s. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I remember when I'd finished mastering the record here in Hollywood at Capitol. It was about five in the morning and uh, I had the masters of the album, the mothers, as we called them, in the backseat of my car. Mm -hmm. And I pulled up on uh, La Brea and Highland behind a truck that had a bumper sticker that said, Death to Disco. (laughs) I remember very clearly thinking, well, geez, we're too late.
0: Bill Oakes was the music supervisor for the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever.
2: It was kind of uh, a sobering moment because all I'd heard for the last six months of my life was these songs, putting them together on an album meant to be the greatest disco record ever, and there it was. There was a backlash, as there is to everything, always. There was a backlash to the Bee Gees later. There was a backlash to the Beatles. Uh, You know, uh, back 10 years earlier, I remember saying to Barry, you're in good company. If there's a backlash, it means you've owned the market.
0: Oakes was the head of RSO Records, one of America's most successful independent labels, named for Robert Stigwood, who managed the Bee Gees. How old were you around this time, if you you mind me asking? I was,
2: um, yeah, (laughs) I was embarrassingly, I was at 22 when they made me president of Arasa Records, which was, I think, probably because I was the only person in the room. (laughs) Uh, It was not because I was selected over a... Large number of candidates, believe me. Right, but I was—I um, had been working with the Beatles. My my former employees were the Beatles, so I'd had some ne- form. Never heard of them as an assistant. No, there you are. Right. Right, <laughs> and I thought after the Beatles, the Bee Gees will be a piece of cake. But of course, the Bee Gees were every bit as idiosyncratic as the Beatles.
0: Is it true that also you were Paul McCartney's assistant also for a while?
2: Well, it wasn't specifically Paul, but it, because Paul ended up not speaking to the others, <laughs> it became more Paul. Uh, I was there for the last year and a half of their existence, really. So I was there from, let it be, uh, Abbey Road, that album, when they were barely talking to each other. So it was kind of an interesting uh, preparation for working in the music business.
0: Robert Stigwood and Bill Oaks optioned the rights to a New York Magazine article by English rock critic Nick Cohn called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. Come on, Tony, dance! It followed the weekend rituals of working-class teenagers in Brooklyn who lived for their nights of dancing at a local disco.
2: What Nick liked was the fact that in the boroughs in Brooklyn, where he went, it was a Saturday night thing, and it was blue collar, and people were learning to dance, do the hustle, and there were no artifice about it. It were people just making sure they looked totally cool. You had to dress up to get in.
0: I grew up in the north of England, and we would sneak into the clubs in Leeds, and... Uh-huh. Uh,
2: you and don't w- sound like a man... You don't sound no, like a I Nordian. don't.
0: Well, I can if I, if I want to. If I want to. Oh, dear. Well, there it better is. you cover that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that they had the rights to Cohen's article, Bill Oaks and Robert Stigwood wanted to get the Bee Gees on board. At the time, they were in France working on an album. Barry, Robin, and Morris Gibb all remember that fateful meeting outside Paris. Yeah, the songs for uh, Saturday Night Fever were written not with Saturday Night Fever in mind.
2: Some of the songs that were heard in Saturday Night Fever 1 were part of our new studio album, which we were recording at the time and just were used in the, in the film. The funniest thing about that is that we didn't even know the film was about, uh, actually all we knew was about a man who works in a paint shop, a young guy who used to and blew his wages every Saturday night in this club, but the word disco was never mentioned. In fact, we didn't even know John Travolta was going to be in the film, did we? No, nah, John Travolta we yeah. didn't know at that time. They didn't seem that interested, funnily enough. They, we really? were talking about the movie, and uh, you know, they would do what Robert said, in a way, I think. He said, look, what have you got? And they had a few songs kicking around, and Staying Alive was originally, I think, we were calling it Saturday Night, but when they came up with Night Fever, Robert thought, well, Night Fever as a standalone title for the movie. sounds a bit, uh, it's like a thriller or a horror movie, so we put together Saturday or Saturday Night. It was, the movie was shot as Saturday Night, and the Bee Gees came up with Night Fever, so we combined the two.
0: On paper, making a movie based on disco featuring the music of a dated 60s rock act seemed like it would never work. But Stigwood wouldn't give up. The final third, oddly fitting piece of the puzzle was John Travolta, who at the time was just a TV heartthrob.
2: Up until Travolta, television stars hadn't really transferred to the big screen. I mean, Henry Winkler hadn't made it as a film actor. So when Robert had a Beverly Hills Hotel press conference announcing a million dollars for, uh, you know, Vinnie Barbarino from Welcome Back, Carter*, people yeah. thought that was crazy.
0: Were you guys surprised? The film comes out, the soundtrack... It goes, you know, bananas. Was it? How, yeah. Was
2: Was it just completely? It was beyond our expectations. It was a going. It was going as Robert always said. This is according to plan. He's very sanguine, sort of dry. <laughs> right. He would say, "This is exactly what I planned." Yeah. But I think even he would have to agree that, that the fact that the movie opened and suddenly, you know, Paramount were getting calls about they need extra security at the theaters because of all the dancing in the aisles. You go to parties in 1977, 78, anywhere in the world, all they put on was Saturday Night Fever. They only needed one album. It lasted an hour and a bit, you know, (laughs) and then you just go back to side one.
0: Right. And was the album released before the film came out?
2: Yes, it was. Uh, Famously, uh, Robert... Uh, had Paramount agree to increase the number of screens we were opening on according to how high the first single went. I mean, it was probably the early days of synergy between the record business and the film business. Because at the time, Paramount didn't seem terribly interested in our little disco movie, as they referred it to me. Uh, He said, I'm selling the record in every city. Why are you only putting it out in 400 screens? So every time the record went up another notch, we had How Deep Is Your Love Out? Every time, when that got to number one, we got another 200 screens, some kind of arrangement wow. he made with Barry Diller. By the time the movie came out, we had a number one and another number one, Staying Alive, came out. And then at some point, we had four out of the top five positions in the singles chart, because the singles jets kept coming. Right. And there'd never been, I don't think, that kind of sort of real synergy between film opening and a record selling it. Because every time you heard the record, it was an ad for the film.
0: And did that change the way the the business works now? Was that the first? I think it did. Mm. I mean,
2: I think they would probably never admit it. I mean, subsequently, I remember Michael Eisner at Paramount saying that they always knew they had Rebel Without a Cause with music, and it right. was always a classic picture. But that's because success has many fathers.
0: Mm. Tell me how the studio reacted to the movie after they saw it.
2: Well, I don't think they liked it particularly because, A, when they first saw it, as studios always demand to see a print, I think, too early before you've mixed it,
1: uh-huh. and
2: it was a dark picture. I think it was much darker than they expected, and to this day, I mean, let's face it, it was an R-rated movie with a lot of um, bad things happening in it. It's not your everyday idea of a teen musical. Oh. hey, Father. Yes, you Frank. 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 Yeah, Frank. Yeah, Frank. Okay, Frank. Yeah, listen, Frank, uh, I got a, I got a girlfriend, you know? Pauline, her name's Pauline, and.
0: and yeah. I, I What do you mean, you got it? You, did you, you get her pregnant? Yes, I did, yes. yes I did. Moments like this would happen on the dance floor, with the Bee Gees playing in the background. In this scene, a friend of Tony's is asking Frank, Tony's older brother, and a priest, for a dispensation. Uh, this, you know, what is this? Dispensation? Yeah, yeah. You think the, the Pope could give Pauline an abortion? Can we give you a dispensation for an abortion? Yeah, you think he could do this?
2: I don't think so, Bob.
0: Well, you know. Scenes like this were true to what disco was for many people at the time—a kind of community where they could confess, commiserate, and keep dancing as long as they needed to to escape their day-to-day lives. And and you know, I think what made Saturday Night Fever so iconic was the fact that it did have this dark underbelly. I think that gave it a kind of grittiness that probably.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, this was not this was not footloose. You know or uh, in Flashdance, there was a serious story in there, and um, it was meant to be. Oh, shut up, will you? Hey! Hey. Where are
0: you? It's disgusting, right? Sick. We just washed the hair. You know, I work on my hair a long time, and and you hit it. He hits my hair. Saturday Night Fever brought a subculture to the masses and made disco more acceptable than it ever had been before. And it helped define the dress codes and hairstyles for an entire era. It was as iconic as any music video MTV ever played, but it was a full-length feature film playing in theaters all across the country with the Bee Gees soundtracking every scene. In your estimation, what has been the enduring impact of Saturday Night Fever?
2: In some ways, it's regarded with a sort of it's joked about, isn't it? I mean, you know, the white suit that people wear mm-hmm. in w- at weddings and the, the line that, who do you think you are, John Travolta? I mean, right. probably bugged John after a while being pigeonholed. And certainly the Bee Gees were pigeonholed by it and, and made to, these were the guys with the silly high voices playing disco. That can be rather <laughs> constraining, I should think. Right. The ultimate, you know, what's the legacy of it? I suppose it certainly changed the way movies and music is marketed, I will say that, mm. you know, that no one thought... Records had any bearing on the film market, and now they do. And um, nowadays, you get musicians and composers begging to be, you know, used on your movie. But uh, in those days, it was—they were two different worlds operating independently.
0: The soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever won a Grammy for Album of the Year. It spent a whopping twenty-four weeks at number one on the Billboard charts. The popularity of that soundtrack propelled the Bee Gees to worldwide fame. Until the disco craze came to its abrupt end in the early 80s, they were playing 50,000-seat arenas across America while wearing the iconic silver LeMay suits now housed at the Smithsonian. Those suits represent a pivotal moment when a huge American subculture went from unseen to seen, unheard to heard, and when a movie whose biggest star was a sitcom heartthrob reshaped the film and music industries with a soundtrack from the Bee Gees. Before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you to just judge my Bee Gees impression. Okay. Can you, would you be willing to do that? You be, yeah, yeah, you tell absolutely. Me if, tell me if I, if I Yo, I. a Are going to sing or speak? I'm going I'm to sing for you.
2: This is the first time. This is the
0: first time. And I do
2: a rating of one to 10, you mean? Yeah,
0: so just tell me on a rate of. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll do that. One to 10. Great. And you tell me, how am I doing as a BG? Ready? Go for it. How can you mend this broken man? How can a loser ever win? Come on. What do you think?
2: Excellent. Excellent. You <laughs> exactly. you sound like Robin doing an impersonation of Barry, which is I, quite a compliment.
0: That is a huge compliment to me. That's yeah. a huge compliment. You, you, it
2: sounds you've got Robin's tone, but the vibrato is Barry's. How can you mend this broken man? How can a loser ever win? <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's nice to meet you. Thank uh, you so much, needs. Bill.
0: It was lovely to meet you. My
2: broken heart And let me live again Da-da. Da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da-da.
0: Next time, I'm lost at the Smithsonian. Wowzer, here are Muppets. Hey ho, Kermit the Frog here. I'll meet the Muppets, and not just the ones you know. I'll meet some of the earliest ones, including the very first Kermit, made from an old green coat that Jim Henson's mother
1: threw out. This is, is was yeah. the actual coat. That's the coat. You can see the jeans sticking out of the bottom there, too. Those are Jim Henson's jeans.
0: Lost at the Smithsonian is produced by Marybeth Kirshner. Our executive producer and editor is Ellen Weiss. Technical support from Robin Wise. Fact-checking from Danielle Roth. And scripting by Alex Berg. Mixing and sound design by Casey Holford and John Delore. Original theme music by Casey Holford. Our supervising producer is Jordan Bell. And our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Huge thanks to the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Eric Jents, Ryan Lintelman, John Troutman, and Laura Duff, for all their help in making this show. Lost at the Smithsonian is a production of the Scripps Washington Bureau and Stitcher. I'm your host, Asif Manvi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Asif and Facebook at Asif Manvi. If you like the show, don't forget to rate and review it on the Apple Podcast app. It really helps other people find the show. Thank you so much for listening.